Hello and welcome to the Clustering Insights podcast hosted by JLL. My name's Chris Walters. I'm the head of life sciences for the UK. And today I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Amrit Chowdhury from Smart Labs, who is going to give us an overview of what's been happening in his world in the US. And in particular, uh, we're going to delve a bit deeper into the operational side of the industry. So hopefully that will be interesting to all of you that are tuning in. Firstly, hello, Amrit. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really well, thanks. Thanks very much for joining. Thank um, you. Thank maybe, you for having me. No problem. Maybe to kick off, um, let's start off with the basics. It'd be great to hear a bit about who Smart Labs are, what do you do, and how did you find yourself in this in this amazing sector? That's a great question. Um, so I'm Amr Chaudhary. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Smart Labs. This is my third biopharma company. I started off in drug development, designing protein chemistry-based therapeutics. Uh, I then pivoted into uh, bioinformatics and built a data platform. Um, and then with my co-founders, uh, built Smart Labs. Um, Smart Labs is an organization that is uh, one part an infrastructure company one part of services and operational company, um, we are delivering what you might consider an alternative approach to a platform for externalized research. So different than a traditional CDMO or CRO in our industry where you wholly outsource programs and projects to a third party, mm -hmm. we're a platform that pharma companies, mid-sized biotechs, and kind of bleeding edge startups utilize to accomplish some of their most critical research programs in their drug development process from discovery stage through phase three clinical. Um, they literally send us hundreds of their researchers and equipment, and we are able to spin up bespoke research environments in two to four weeks for that team with customized resources, customized SOPs, and the entire operational and operating backend of people, process, programs, technology that they just plug into to execute their research. So it's a faster, cheaper, more coordinated way of doing a wide diversity of research side by side, all on site at a Smart Labs research center. I was, I was interested when I was looking at your website, there was a, there was a tagline and it, it definitely stood out. It said, today's science deserves a better lab we got tired of waiting, so we created it. Which I thought was a great line, to be honest. I was just really, really interested to hear, you, why did you create Smart Labs? What made you write a phrase like that? Where did it all come from based on what you've been seeing in the market? I started my career in industry in the mid 2000s. Um, so I started doing peptide chemistry-based drug development, um, working across a number of therapeutic areas, modalities and different stages. So from discovery research all the way through to phase three. Um, and the process development, scale up, manufacturing, antibody development, immuno-oncology, like you name it. I, I was super fortunate to, to work across those sectors from the perspective of an expert in protein chemistry. Um, my partners and I, when we met up in 2014, right in the beginning of the year, were identifying some macro trends that were changing with the groups we work with. So Seth Taylor, my, my co-founder, um, you know, did corporate advisory work and large-scale M&A for, I think, like Fortune 200 Biopharma Biotech. And so he would go in, take a look at large-scale 
uh, long-term research mandates, a three to five to 10 year research horizon that a large organization was setting with multi-billion dollars of research focus. And he would help them audit and, and refine um, that kind of corporate growth strategy around, mm -hmm. hey, are these the right areas to be investing into? Let's do market mapping, market land, you know, uh, a landscape of technology ch uh, changes that are happening. Um, and then come back with recommendations on, hey, you know, let's move away from this. Let's move in these new novel areas that are coming out. And then he'd do bolt-on M&A transactions um, for, you know, acquisition strategies around how you can go, to, how a large company get into a new area. Um, so he was an expert on the business side, constantly having conversations at the, uh, you know, board CEO level of large organizations around that, that type of strategy. Um, I was fortunate because my first company um, was kind of like a hybrid CRO. We had our own research, but we also uh, were, think of like a super highly technical CRO in protein chemistry across lots of different drug companies. So when they, they we would have a unique perspective and a unique skill set that they wouldn't be able to replicate internally. So that led us to partnering with heads of research and, and divisions of major pharma, major academia, uh, and kind of like cutting edge startups uh, in their in their modalities. And so I was hearing and seeing over the course of a decade changes in the landscape of how drugs are being invested into projects mm -hmm. that were moving forward and not moving forward. Um, and what companies were suddenly choosing to externalize, not to like a manufacturer or external research partner, like a Charles River or Alonza, um, but they were choosing to actually not do any of the research internally and invest in startups, mid-sized companies, university partnerships, um, and, and really starting to accelerate that process that we see that is ubiquitous today, you know, seven years later. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were scratching our head and saying, what's going on? Why, why is all of this changing so rapidly? This is a very slow moving industry for the most part. Um, and it turns out that the industry historically had been really, really, really slow to adapt to large change. Um, you know, for almost a hundred and something years, the pharma industry was a chemistry industry. It was about small molecule chemicals. And a lot of these companies started off, you know, making rubber and paint, right? These big pharma companies, um, they just were expert chemists that found medicinal uses of their chemistry capabilities. Um, you know, that was true until really the 1980s. You know, if you went back and took a look at Sipagaygi and Pfizer and Merck back in the day, they didn't do any biology. Biology was the thing you tested your chemistry against. Um, and then all of a sudden, there was the advent of the biotech industry. Companies like Amgen, Genentech, Genzyme, Biogen, these organizations really validated an entirely new way of thinking about uh, treating disease. And it was mm -hmm. this idea that you could use basic biology, uh, your immune system with antibodies and proteins to directly address the underlying mechanisms of disease to inhibit or to attack um, that in a way that we really didn't have previously outside of virology and immunology um, and you know, making, making vaccines. And so those companies went from startups to being almost as large as every major pharma, you know, the $100 billion market cap, $80 billion market cap. 
And what they proved was that there was an entirely new market that Big Pharma could address, an entirely new set of diseases that could be addressed that weren't possible via traditional chemistry. And it meant the entire industry needed to shift and change. So here's where it gets interesting. Labs are static things, right? You build a chemistry lab, it's a chemistry lab forever. Um, and you build facilities that pharma is used to, you know, rotating research through for 50 years. You know, the facility gets built in the 1950s, it's still operational in the you know, year 2000. Um, and all of a sudden, pharma realized it didn't have the right type of infrastructure, the right kind of scientists, the right type of resources to address basic biology. So at different rates of change, from 1985 to 2010, the pharma industry completely reconfigured itself in 25 years, approximately. And it was a multi-hundred billion dollar uh, investment. It was, you know, large organizations literally moving and shifting like million square foot campuses. Um, you know, think of Sibagaygi and Sandoz merging in Europe, uh, Swiss bio biopharma companies and creating Novartis in the 19 mid nineties, like 95, and then deciding that its new headquarters of research was going to be in the United States in Boston, right? And moving there in 1999, literally shifting a global, you know, a $10 billion R and D budget from Europe to the U S um, because they believed that the U S was better equipped to handle this new modality of science, the biology. So when all of this happened, you know, basically different companies at different rates of change and everyone reshifted in a way they never thought they were going to have to. And in 2010, they said, we're done. We finished. We're finally ready for biology. And, you know, we think of that as scientists as a two modality industry. That was small molecule chemistry, large molecules, proteins and, and, um, and antibodies. And all of a sudden the industry is like, wait a minute, in the next 15 years, we're going to go from a two modality industry to a 10 modality industry. They, uh, <laughs> they realized they just spent $200 billion shifting everything, who they were, where they are, who, who composes their R&D engine. And they're going to have to do that another five times. And so the industry was struggling, right? How do you deal with things that were coming out like gene editing, cell therapies, uh, mRNA-based based therapies, therapies based on protein degradation, uh, protein based on viral vectors. Uh, you know, we're talking about different competencies required, different equipment, different workflow, different environments, segregation between these environments. Um, we and, and part of that answer was a heavier investment saying, there's no way that our, you know, 2000 person organization that used to be 2000 people focusing on chemistry, uh, the R and D engine. Now it's a thousand people focusing on chemistry and a thousand people focusing on biology. We can't have a hundred person teams focusing on 15 different topics, right? 15 different foundational yeah. technologies, right? Or we're not going to grow to a organization that's eight times larger and its headcount when that's not reflective of our revenue. Right. So how do you address that? Uh, you encourage a startup industry that 
de-risks the science by proving it out and proving that it's valid, and then you address it via acquisitions. So we saw, when we first started this company, we weren't trying to build the best enterprise solution um, for everybody. We were saying, wow, the industry is about to go and externalize a bunch of its research into startup and mid-sized companies. And unlike a Novartis, which has 10 million square feet of R&D footprint globally, that startup doesn't have 10, right? Thousand square feet of, of, of space. Um, and so, and, and doesn't have scale and has no historical protocols or resources or systems in place or whatnot. So the initial version of our company uh, in 2015 was around how do you build the best infrastructure for companies that are about to start scaling? Um, so going from that two guys and an idea to a legitimate 200, 300 person um, organization yeah. and what kind of resourcing was required to de-risk that process, accelerate that process, create consistency in that process. And uh, that serendipitously, you know, led us to understanding much, much larger macro issues in the industry that we then decided to go tackle in the coming years. And, and the nature of the infrastructure, the actual physical infrastructure that you've built is designed to capture as much of that as possible by essentially providing the, the shell um, of a building and the ultimate flexibility to any incoming customer that you that you engage with. Would you say that that flexibility in terms of what your customer base wants is the most important thing that you're trying to address at Smart Labs? Uh, I, I think it's definitely up there. I think that what we're today trying to address, because we, we've evolved over time, um, is that there was a realization somewhere in 2016, end of 2016, that our, the, the, the real challenge of what we're trying to solve for is how do you address the variability of science in a nimble mm -hmm. and expedient way that's still capitally effective, right? That science is changing. We invest in static assets that don't change. Yeah. Um, that, that's the actual underlying problem we're trying to address. And how do you then not just address a part of it, which is the asset itself, the infrastructure, but how do you do it in a way because just handing somebody, you know, it's like if it's like if you needed a sports car and then three weeks later you needed a minivan because you have kids and whatnot, it's not just about handing you the keys, right? Um, there's there's more to it in, in how you support those endeavors and processes. Um, and so what we really built um, was a foundationally new way of building a lab that is different than how any other organization in the world has ever built a lab before in history. <laughs> it's a bold statement. We, we've literally built the smartest lab in the world. Um, and it goes down to the infrastructure, mechanical control systems, uh, software IoT integration, uh, and then deeply understanding thousands of different experimental workflows and how you can support them off of a singular uniform platform. Um, Today, you build a space for a single workflow. That's how science works. And you tailor it down, you customize it, and you build SOPs for it, and it's static forever. And maybe with some tweaking, you can take that space and make it work for five or six things. Uh, we invented a way of making infrastructure work for thousands of things. Um, 
which is that entire scope of research. So 95% of science at every stage, at every size of organization and team size fits in today at a smart labs, which is like unimaginable. It's really interesting. I was on a, um, was part of an event recently where um, one of the panel members was saying, you know, these companies that are particularly in the life sciences are really just need a base shell, something that they can break down walls, create walls, have ultimate flexibility to build what they need to do for that particular area of research or that particular project that they're committing to. Uh, because things do change at an unbelievable pace. And I think it's interesting your your operational model around building that in so you can try to capture as much of the market as possible. And I think it's something that we frequently hear from our clients, particularly those that are bringing forward new supply. There are definitely um, key considerations from a technical perspective that need to be thought about when you're doing ground up development, but the the quite common question is, well, how much of these are red lines? How much of them do I have to have versus a nice to have? And how do I ensure that I capture as much of that market as possible? So I think a lot of the things you're saying in the context of your market in the US are resonating a lot here in the UK as people look to bring forward new space. Um, a follow-on question really is, in terms of that, those needs from your customers, how do you see that changing? Or is the the challenge that you're continually setting yourself as a team is to make sure that you build that ultimate flexibility for years to come? You're not quite sure what's around the corner. Let me give you an example. A customer of ours for a 200 person organization and, and team um, decided to spin up activities around a yeast and biological heavy process that they were using to address a specific um, a specific disease area. They had a mechanism of action that they were pursuing via yeast. So they built an entire program from like R&D, QCQA, GLP, GXP compliance, through pilot scale manufacturing, all geared towards yeast. And about two months before that, coming online because they came to us about four or five months earlier they like spun up the project hired all the executives brought on the first 40 researchers did initial proof of concepts in their existing lab and were like oh this isn't going to work we have to pivot this to uh, to oligonucleotide chemistry like now wow okay from a company that multi-hundred million dollar project would then just go die because there'd be literally no way for them to do that. They would take five yeah. years, three years to, to do that. You'd literally fire all those people and say, sorry, next project. We, in a month, repivoted all of the infrastructure investments they've made, all the planning investments they made from a heavy bioreactor scale-up biology process across all of those functions, you know, the labs themselves being biology labs and spun them to a chemistry facility across all those things by a month. So it took them instead of, you know, when they were going to start on, you know, a date, let's call it a December, they started on January 1st with a complete pivot of every resource in between. That's, that's great. That's, 
<laughs> Kudos to you and the team. Yeah, um, not, not, nothing that I was doing. It's we have a phenomenal team of people who are literally the leading experts in this stuff. And and looking ahead in terms of the industry and where you see it going, what do you what are you seeing that's holding it back, either at a, a macro level um, or at a more local level for you? What do you think is the biggest challenge that is facing the the growth of the R and D market? So it's different in different regions and geographies, and it's different for different types of companies. So Big Pharma in general is having, as always, challenges with change, right? The world is changing around them. Um, and as the science changes, uh, business models change. So think of how um, in other industries, things are going like, like, like agriculture. Agriculture is going local. People chase after local produce, local organic, instead of global, you know, mid eighties, mid nineties, total global economy of, uh, just go for the cheapest mass produced product. Right now, people are striving after something different that's caused that industry to change. We are now looking at macro changes in multimodalities, many of those modalities of which pharma companies have zero experience and competency in today. So they're going to have to actually build and experiment and develop that in-house and also acquire that either via company acquisitions or, or uh, asset acquisitions, that process. Even with a new modality of science that you've gotten really good at doing research, the drug manufacturing is something that is a massive amount of infrastructure change that's going to be required. Yeah. Um, and in fact, potentially um, change in a way that the industry doesn't know how to address. So... We are in an industry of centrally produced drugs for the global markets. Um, we are now talking about potentially needing to do um, regionally distributed drug manufacturing, um, uh, either for resilience because of supply chain challenges like COVID, uh, or because some of these therapies are actually not viable uh, if it's not done locally, because the viability of the therapy itself, it, because it either involves a patient, like uh, an autologous cell therapy, where you take a patient sample, process it, and put it back in the patient, right? That's easiest done local to the patient where they're being treated, um, or just supply chain challenges. Drug manufacturing is a, is a massive issue and the distribution of such. Um, and then as we say that more and more of the industry is going into this like mid-size company space from big pharma to mid-size, and mid-size supported by the startups, you know, there are macroeconomic trends that um, are challenging in Europe, in Asia, that the U.S. benefits from. So if you take a look at the U.K. today, in the value share of biotech, where all the market cap of all the biopharma organizations that are headquartered and do primary research, you know, the U.S. represents 58% of all the biopharma in the world. The UK today represents 1.4%. Uh, you know, Europe in general, aggregated together, represents about 20. China's rising. They're up, they're getting into the tens mm. as a singular organized, you know, singular country. Um, and Asia overall is probably 20 uh, in, in, in aggregate, uh, 20 to 25%. Um, and so it's, the, the way that companies get funded 
and the public markets in these sectors are actually really challenging. So in the U.S., yeah. you know, we're cowboys, right? So we, we literally have companies that are so far pre-revenue, it, it's, it's like being in the past. Uh, I mean, it is, it is crazy. You, you look at a company that goes public um, and within you know, months hits a $2 billion market cap, and you take a look at that company and you go, you're not going to sell a single dollar of revenue for 10 years. Like 100% speculative based on the potential. We are betting purely on your potential as an organization and the entire stock market is supporting you through that endeavor. Complete speculation, right? And speculative bets on binary outcomes. It works or it doesn't. Not like, are you going to hit your revenue target and is it going to scale? Uh, it, it works or it doesn't. And then you get into market competitiveness of your drug against all the other drugs in the market by that time in your sector and, and, and in the space you're in. But that being said, in America, we've had in, in the last, since 2017, we've had about 220-ish IPOs of biopharma companies. Uh, in all of Europe, barely 60. In APAC, you know, 100 and something. Amri, when you're thinking about sort of the... Clearly, the U.S. market is is different. It's driven by different things. It has other things underpinning it. But when you think about the U.K. and the European markets in particular, do you view them with a positive outlook in terms of their potential for growth? And it's, it is a question of maturity to some extent that these markets will follow in the same way a lot of these markets in the broader U.S. market are starting to come to the fore. I mean, it's interesting. Technically, you are the mature market. <laughs> you have the longest the history past of, yeah. of biopharma research, right? Um, in fact, you can argue the drug development pharma companies, there were more in Europe than the United States just 30 years ago, um, uh, in, in where the research was actually happening. Um, you know, that shifted focus and, and moved globally. Does that have the potential of moving globally again? Absolutely. It moved because the technology and knowledge base moved. Uh, and the people or the drug development expertise is what mattered. So there's an opportunity for novel areas of research really being supported by the basic research startup and mid-sized company environments in Europe. And that then causing yeah. re large scale research to move back. Um, and I think about this as, you know, the top 30 pharma companies spend about 70% of global R&D budget. So... Think about that. 30 companies spend 70% of the world's 200 something billion dollar R&D budget in biopharma. Everybody mm -hmm. else, the mid-sized companies, startups globally uh, represent everything else, right? So the 30%, um, uh, the 20%. So it's a uh, big pharma still is who spends the most amount of money. Um, I think the what what's going to be necessary is a different public market perspective that then mm. gives rise to venture capital and private investment going behind companies where they now see a path to exit via public markets, right? If you don't have a public market exit, you have to rely on your drug asset working, raising the billions of dollars to be a real drug company that can manufacture and distribute the drug, or um, solely relying on opportunities for uh, acquisition in a competitive market space right? Where you're now discounting the value of the op option because, you know, those drug companies now know that if they don't buy you, 
And if no one's going to buy you, there's no way for your investors to become liquid. Um, right? So that's, it's, you're, you're in a little bit of a hostage situation there um, from a valuation perspective. Whereas if you say, look, either you buy us and now you get to have this intellectual property or we go public and you never get it back or it takes you a much more difficult path to getting that back um, is a totally different, and we're happy both ways, is a very different negotiation um, for, for a private company and bumps value, right? U.S. biopharma companies are worth more, not because the science is any better. It's because they're in a better business position um, than their counterparts in Asia and, and, the U- and, and Europe, EU and UK. Um, I think that there needs to be aggregation around real talent and real focus around cutting edge science. I think that's what drives yeah. everything. And cutting edge science, unfortunately, doesn't mean university science. It means the translation of that and then the skill set required to understand how to take the discovery stage through the translation and development stage and to, th- to successful commercial launch. It's that drug development expertise. Um, and what's happened in the US is that the two generations ago drug development experts taught the one generation ago drug development experts. So the, the chemists from the 1980s taught the biologists and work with them to figure out how to apply those methodologies of how you get through the FDA, how do you get through the manufacturing challenges? How should we think about distribution? How do we start solving the supply chain challenges in this new, you know, raw materials are different for biologics than chemicals, right? How do we, how do we secure the raw material supply chain uh, of a completely different thing? Um, and that then, because the U.S. had that, you know, intermittent step, then taught the, you know, is teaching actively right now the next generation of modalities because it's like a, it's a, it's like an evolution. It's an, it's an iterative evolution of, of the challenges. So a cell therapy is like a more advanced biological process. If you start with how biological processes work for validation and development, you're evolving from there instead of starting from scratch. Um, and so U.S. just has more of that in that second generation experience. So interesting, Amra. I mean, I really appreciate um, hearing your insight in terms of what's happened in the market. I feel like we could go on, but um, I'm much, much longer, but I think we'll have to pause it there. Thank you so much for your time. I think it's great to hear about what Smart Labs are doing, particularly how how it was created and, and getting your sense and feeling for where it might go. So thanks very much on behalf of um, myself and everyone listening for your time. Thank you so much. This is great. No problem. Speak soon.